This is unstructured. Today, I'm really excited to have former FBI agent Kenneth Lanning, who actually worked with a previous guest of the show, Jim Clemente. Both of them worked in the behavioral sciences unit. Yes, Jim came into the unit about 1998 and understudied me. I was the principal agent dealing with uh, sexual exploitation of children and, and that kind of thing. And, and the work began to get overwhelming to me, for me by myself, particularly with the Internet cases and so on. So they started to bring in some additional agents. And Jim was one of those agents who I had known before and had mentored him and done some training with him and so on. So I basically uh, trained him to come into the unit and show him how what we were doing and what we were trying to do. Did you also work with a previous guest of the show, Jim Fitzgerald? Yes, he was in the unit as well. I didn't work as closely with him because he was in a slightly different area. When Jim came into the unit, he specifically got involved in crimes against children, whereas Jim uh, Fitzgerald was involved in a lot of different things, threat assessment and other kinds of things. So I knew him and interacted with him, but we weren't dealing with the same area. Now, you really go deeply back. And by the way, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm kind of jumping into things. I got so excited having you here. (laughs) My pleasure. From what I understand, you're from Brooklyn originally? No, I'm from the Bronx. Uh, oh, Bronx. <laughs> sorry. For, for people who are not from New York, maybe they don't see any difference, but there is a difference. I was from the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx in the 1950s and early 60s. Just a middle class overall kind of neighborhood? What was that like? Yeah, it was pretty much of a middle class neighborhood. There really weren't any rich people. There weren't any poor people. They were pretty much middle class. It was primarily one of the people who not from New York think of New York as Manhattan. But the other boroughs, such as the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, are predominantly or were then ethnic type of neighborhoods. My neighborhood was primarily Irish Catholic and some Italian Catholic and so on. And most of my neighborhood, it was a neighborhood, but it centered around uh, the church parish. I went to St. Nicholas of Tolentine, which is a large parish there. And so we went to the grammar school and the high school there at the church. And so most of the people, the activity focused around the church and the neighborhood. And it was an ethnic neighborhood. And what I described in my book is people say, oh, you grew up in New York in the Bronx. And they think that every day was some kind of a gunfight or a knife fight or something. I say to people, for all practical purposes, I grew up in Mayberry. It just happened to be in the in the middle of New York City because everybody knew each other. There was minimal crime. There was no violence. There was no drugs. It was just little stuff going on, nothing of any great significance. And everybody really knew each other. From what I understand, your parents were in a mixed marriage, one Catholic, one Protestant. Yeah, that was the interesting thing. My mother was Protestant and my father was Catholic. And back in those days, if a Catholic married a Protestant, the Protestant had to agree to raise the children as Catholics, which my mother did. And and so she went along. But my mother did this so well and was so active in the church that most people in the community just assumed that she was Catholic and a member of the parish. But she never converted. And after we after my father died and we all grew up, she went back to going to the Protestant church. Now, you grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. So Vietnam was really picking up at that time. Yes. You know, when I graduated from college in 1966, at that time, the Vietnam War was raging, and I had a deferment because I was in college, but I knew that once I graduated from college, my deferment would quickly end, and probably within a matter of three months or so, I would have been probably drafted into the Army. So as I got, when I got to my senior year in college, I knew that I was going to have to do something about the military. One option was to go to graduate school and continue continue your deferment. You could do a variety of other things. I just decided that I was going to go into the military and serve my country. But I wanted some control over it, so I decided if I was going to go, I'd rather go as an officer. And if I was going to go as an officer, I'd rather go in the Navy or the Air Force. So I wound up going to Navy Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, you have a really interesting story about all this. You were essentially trying to game the system as much as you could in order to spend as much time as possible with your wife, right? Yes. My plan was that when I went to officer candidate school, I was going to be commissioned an ensign in the Navy. And at that point, my plan was to get married. And I thought I would just be married. And I was I'm embarrassed. I told this story in my book. I was embarrassed. I kind of thought the Navy was some kind of yacht club where you went out in the morning at 8 o'clock and you got on the ship and you cruised around the harbor and you came back at 5 o'clock and went home. So when I got there and they started to talk about all these mid cruises and you'd be gone for one and a half, two years, 
And they said, if you're planning to get married, I would postpone it because you're never going to see your wife. You're going out to sea. And that shore duty was very difficult to get for a new ensign. And I was now getting depressed. And then one day early on, they brought us over to listen to these presentations about volunteer programs that you could go to. And one of them was called Explosive Ordnance Disposal, which back at that time, most people didn't know what it was. But it was basically what's now called the Bomb Squad, Dismantling Bombs. A lot of people confuse it with SEALs and UDT and Frogmen and those kind of things because both individuals are divers and so on. But anyway, I listened to this presentation. I went up and started to talk to the guy, and he told me what it was about and basically informed me that the training to go into this program would last for a year. And during that time, you would have shore duty for a year. So I said, sounds good to me. And I said, now, after a year, if I decide it's not for me or it's too dangerous, what can I do? And he said, well, you can just leave the program. It's a volunteer program, and then you'll be assigned on a ship. So I said, okay. I had been a swimmer in high school and college, a competitive swimmer. I was a pretty good swimmer. So I just decided that I would volunteer for this program to see if I could get in it. And at least I would, could get married and have a year shore duty with my wife. <laughs> you have to admit, it's kind of funny, though. I want to hang out with my wife. So I'm going to go play with explosive in order to do it. Right. Well, that, when I told, you, you hit the nail on the head when I told my wife and my mother and my wife's mother that I was going to become a bomb disposal technician, they looked at me like I was crazy. And so a lot of people go out. And then I even thought about it. I said, what a bizarre reason to become a bomb technician so you can spend a year shore duty with your wife. <laughs> rather and than so, extending and getting a master's degree. Right. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Rather than going to graduate school and getting a master's degree. So anyway, that's what I wound up doing. And, and, and part of the, what I talk about in my book is how you make these decisions in your life and you don't know where they're really going to lead you and what's going to happen as a result of it and so on. And so I got, and when I got into Navy officer candidate school, the only reason I get in is back then I was not the only one who had this idea to go to be an officer in the Navy. There were like 200 people who took the test the day that I did. And then we, two of them got a high enough passing grade to continue on and to be processed. And one of them was me because I was a fairly good student. And then when I got into this EOD program, when I got to the end, they, they graded you all through the process and rated you. And so when I got to the end, I was the highest ranking officer academically in my class by the student grading system. And so I was number one, which meant that I got my choice of all available orders that came up. So Navy personnel would say, okay, here's so many openings and so on. And the one who was number one in the class could pick the one that they wanted. And when I graduated, one of the billets was to stay at the EOD school as an instructor. <laughs> so, Which is very fortuitous. Right, exactly. And I had no way of knowing that. I just tried to do as well as I could in class to pass and keep moving on. It was not my goal to do that. But because I had done well in class, I was selected to stay there at the school. And so for the next three years or so, I was an instructor at the EOD school. And I tell people for all practical purposes, it was like going to a job. I just wore the same suit every day. <laughs> so I went to work at the school and I taught and all this stuff. And then I'd come home in the evening with my wife and eventually she got pregnant and we had a baby. And then when the time was up, I was looking for a job. I had met a couple of FBI agents who used to come down to the school because they worked in the explosives unit at the FBI laboratory. And they recruited me to come into the FBI. And so I came into the FBI and went through new agent training uh, for 16 weeks. And again, once again, I just did the best I could. I studied as hard as I could to try to do as well as I could. And when I got to the end, near the end, all of a sudden I get a call from some guy who calls me up and tells me that because of all the bombings that were going on back at this time in 1970 in the country and the protesters and all that stuff, a lot of bombings all over the country. And so they were setting up a high-level training program for FBI and police dealing with bombing matters. And they found out I had been in EOD, and, and they said, we're going to have you come into the class. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because sure. you're in a unique position. And I sort of feel like 1968 through 72, 73, it was really bad in terms of the bombing, the protests, everything going on. It almost seems like it's repeating itself now. Well, that's the interesting thing. T today, so many people seem to have a memory that goes back about five years. Anything that happened more than five years, years ago, nobody seems to remember it. And so, like, they talk about who's the greatest basketball player 
you know, Michael Jordan or, you know, and so on, uh, James and, and so on. And they ask me, and they say, well, what about Bill Russell? And I go, Bill Russell? Bill Russell only won the NBA championship like 10 out of 12 years that he played. And most people don't, most people don't even know who the heck he was. But anyway, but back then people don't remember. And even my son-in-law, when I talk to him, he tells me what's going on now. And he said, well, how does it compare to back then? And I said to me, well, this is not a good thing that's going on now, but in my opinion, it was worse in that 68 to 73 time frame. There was all kinds of dissension and problems and protests. Some of them were nonviolent, but a lot of them were violent. When I joined the FBI and got involved in this kind of stuff, I was just in a couple of months when one night they called me up because somebody blew up the ROTC building and another government building there in downtown St. Louis. Was that Bill Ayers? No, I don't think he was involved in that particular bombing. I don't know whether they ever identified the ones that did that particular one. But these various bombers were floating around, and I always thought it was kind of ironic that people who were protesting the war decided to do so by blowing up buildings and killing people. <laughs> it seemed to quite make sense to me. But anyway, all of that was going on. There was a lot of disruption in the country and a lot of, you know, polarization and all that was going on, you know, when I was in the military and then in my early days in the FBI. And the other interesting thing, when you compare it to today, I'm reading all this stuff about what the Russians are doing and how the Russians interfered with the election and so on. But in a lot of these anti-war movements that we were looking at and monitoring, the Soviets were heavily involved, not running, not controlling, but heavily involved in trying to influence these groups. Because even back then, in, in, in 1970, their primary interest was disrupting American society. They didn't really care about any of this stuff. They just got involved in it because anything that caused problems in the country was to their advantage. So they were meddling in, in the anti-war movement and the protests and all that kind of stuff. So this has been going on for a long time. But it's something after 73, when the war kind of ended, at least the violent part of it, the bombings and so on kind of stopped uh, to, for the most part. There were still bombings, obviously, but not to the same extent. And, and, the, and the tone of the country began to change shortly after that. And I do think about that, too. I mean, I don't know how often we read about it's never been worse in the past couple of years, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. It's like, right, yes. did you ever look at the election of 1800? Right, I mean, right. You ultimately had a vice president uh, uh, kill somebody in a duel. Yeah, exactly right. And, and so in, in my case, I have two things. Number one, I'm old, and therefore I remember a lot of this stuff. I can remember the 1960s and the 1970s and what was going on. A lot of people today can't. And in addition to that, I've always been a history buff. That was one of my favorite subjects in school. So I know about a lot about history and so on. And so a lot of people look at this stuff in isolation and they just don't understand. Even matter of fact, even in my book, I talk about some of these cl cliches that people talk about, like children should never die before their parents and so on and so forth. And it's going to be the first generation that won't be richer than their parents. None of that is true. Throughout history, most parents... Matter of fact, I use the example of one of the queens, I think it was Queen Anne or whatever it was. She had 17 children and they all died before they were in infancy. And so it was very common because of health conditions and sanitation for children to die very young. And almost all parents had children who died before they did. And for most of history, Children did about as well as their parents did. If you were a serf plowing the field, that's what your kids did. So this idea that each generation always did better simply isn't true in the long term. Now, it may be true in the last 20, 30, 40 years or so, but it certainly is not true long term. But everybody says these things as if everybody knows it and it's true, but it's kind of a long-term view of the past, short-term view of the past. That reminds me of something I I think I heard it recently that there was a Sumerian document, one of the earliest out there, and in essence, it was complaining about kids these days. Right. And, and I think there's even a famous quote from Plato or Socrates where he talks about how this next generation is so bad and we're doomed and everything's going down the drain. And then as far as I know from my study of history around 1000 AD, everybody thought the world was coming to an end and this is it and they were predicting the end of the world. So people don't have a long-term perspective. So I tried to understand that. But in my case, what I came to realize is just doing well and making certain decisions kept bringing me to these crossroads. And I would come to a fork in the road and I would go here and this would lead me to that and this would lead me to that. And all of a sudden, 
I get called out of new agent training and asked to come to an in-service on bombing matters when that had never be happened before. No FBI agent right out of new agent training went to an in-service, which was usually for senior experienced agents. And I did it. Why? And I later on, when they had the freedom of information and you could see your file, I saw the memo that this man wrote to get that, let that happen. Oh, wow. And in there, in there, he talked about my academic standing in college. He talked about that I was the number one student in my new agent training class. He talked about all that kind of stuff. And that's what helped me get the director himself to approve me going to this in service. And that was now I go. That was Hoover, yes. Wow. And so now, yeah, on this memo is the blue H. That was the way Hoover signed something. If he approved it, he, only he could write in blue ink and he'd put this H on it. So I got approved and it started me down this career. So my first day in my first office, I'm uh, what the FBI called a police instructor. I'm doing training for state and local police. And I'm responding to bombings and these kinds of incidents, which was unusual for somebody who was a brand new agent and so on and so forth. And so all of that was going on in my life. And so it changed the direction of my life. And then as I describe in my book, 1973 came, the bombings began to stop. The request for training about bombing also began to slow down. And so my training coordinator said to me, Ken, would you like to teach something else? And I said, well, under the police training program, and I said, what else can I teach? I said, I learned this bombing stuff in the military. And he said, well, the Bureau will train you. Here's a whole list of things. Look down this list and see if there's anything that interests you. So I'm looking down the list and I get to almost to the bottom and I see these magical two words, sex crimes. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you mean I can go to a class that the FBI is putting on and they're gonna teach me about sex crimes? He says, yeah. I said, okay, sign me up for that one. So once again, I went to that class believing that it was somehow going to be about quote unquote sex, because once I got there, I realized it was hardly all about sex as most people understand. It was really about crimes and a lot of it was really repulsive and disgusting stuff. But anyway, I just became intrigued by the whole topic. So the name of my book is Love, Bombs and Molesters. And it takes this journey where the first big decision I made was due to love. I wanted to get married and spend time with my wife. So I went into the Navy and then I got involved in bombing that led me to the FBI. And then I started to do this. And then pretty soon the next thing I know, I'm involved in teaching this sex crime stuff. And I really enjoyed the teaching. And eventually I got a couple a master's degree, which qualified me to be an instructor back at Quantico at the FBI Academy. And I just decided I get tired after 10 years of working cases, doing investigation, and also had this other collateral duty of training. It was hard to do both. I almost had two supervisors. So I decided I wanted to try to do it full time. Was that similar to, um, I've had Chris Voss on the show before he is a hostage negotiator and he described it as it's other duties as yes. assigned. Well, not only that, I was a hostage negotiator. So when I started to get involved in this stuff, other classes came along and I, and, and because I was in San Antonio, Texas at the time, which was a relatively small office then, and they would have all these classes where they would say, send one agent for every field office. And so we didn't have many agents. So I, I think during the seven years I was in San Antonio, I went to like 24 in services. And, and one of them was hostage negotiation. So in my case, some people, what they call general police instructors, they teach everything. But I taught hostage negotiation, bombing, and sex crimes. And I couldn't think of more intrinsically interesting three topics. I mean, if you can't keep the class interested in those topics, so I would teach all of these kinds of things. And so that was very interesting areas to have some expertise in and so on. But the interesting, going back to what you're asking about, what the FBI discovered is they trained some agents to be hostage negotiator negotiators. That would mean that when the FBI had a case where you were negotiating with a hostage taker, you would call this agent and the agent would respond. Well, the FBI doesn't really have a lot of those cases. And sometimes a bomber would get trapped in a, I mean, a bank robber would get trapped in a bank and he's in there and he's holding the employees of the customers hostage and you start to negotiate with them. But most of the agents who were just negotiators, they began to lose their skills because they never really did them. There was many, not many opportunities, but the Bureau also had another program, which I did, which was called hostage negotiator police instructor. So my job was to know everything about hostage negotiation, so that I could train and teach the local police. 
as a result of that, you stay current. We would follow incidents, we would respond to incidents, we would talk to the police and so on. So all of this stuff was fresh in your mind because you would teach it on a regular basis. You knew all the principles of hostage negotiation. So that's what I did. So the FBI having that, they found very shortly that most of the best negotiators that they had were the ones who were also police instructors. But eventually I went to Quantico, where I became a full-time instructor. And back at Quantico, that was part of the training division. And the primary purpose of the behavioral science unit was to teach behavioral science topics to state and local police, particularly in the National Academy program. But at the time that I arrived, they were just beginning to branch out into other areas. So agents like Bob Ressler, uh, John Douglas, and Roy Hazelwood, these guys began to take this knowledge of behavioral sciences and criminal behavior and began to apply it to actual cases. And so they had a consulting component to it, an operational component to it, which came to be known, unfortunately, as profiling. And then they also began to do research where you'd go out and you'd teach all this stuff and somebody would say, well, you're in the FBI. How many of these murder cases do you investigate? That's not really a federal offense. So they started to think, well, how can we improve our knowledge and expertise and credentials to teach? So you're out on the road teaching a school, you have a break over the weekend and you say, hey, why don't we go up to the penitentiary up the road here because Charlie Manson's there. Why don't we go up and talk to him and see if he'll talk to us. Did you do any of that like John Douglas and Robert Ressler? Yeah, Douglas and Ressler started it and they started interviewing like Ed Kemper and Charlie Manson and a bunch of these people and David Berkowitz, the son of Sam and so on. Then I came into the unit a little bit later and I began to branch out, but I went with Douglas. He and I went and we interviewed John Wayne Gacy and a couple other trial killers and so on and so forth. And so I was involved in that on their you know, coattail, so to speak. So I got involved in that, but that became a research component. Then pretty soon I was put in charge of several research projects dealing with crimes against children. So the thing was that the work we were doing there had three components to it. And, they, and I used to use the analogy of a three-legged stool and they used to make fun of me and laugh about it and so on and so forth. But eventually the two units that were left behind that I was in created a logo pin and each of these pins essentially was my three-legged stool of doing training, research, and case consultation. And if you can find a mechanic who does those three things, a medical doctor who does those three things, I don't care what he does. If you find somebody who does research, case consultation or operational work, and then also trains other people, you usually have the highest level of expertise. And that's what we were doing in our unit. Even though we were part of the training division, we had this operational component. So I consulted on thousands of cases. Now, one of the big problems today is when people watch television like Silence of the Lambs and Criminal Minds, they show these agents from the Behavioral Science Unit conducting investigation. And I was in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but many people don't understand that in the Behavioral Science Unit, what I was doing was not investigation, it was consultation. You were advising. You've said something about that before, about an award on the phone? Yes. <laughs> yeah, what happened was was my 25th anniversary, and they had a little dinner for me, a luncheon there at the academy and so on, and they said, okay, we got a gift for you, and they came up and they hand me the receiver from a telephone, and then he says, this is for Ken Lanning, who basically spent 25 years in the FBI, 13 and a half of it on the telephone. Because most of this consultation work was, I didn't run out to a helicopter and jump on the helicopter and fly around the country. But now, if, they, if you just showed agents from the behavioral science unit talking to people on the telephone, who the heck would go see the movie or watch the, watch the TV program? So they have to yuck it up in these programs. The problem is people watch that and they think it's real. And the other story that I tell in my book just one day, some eight, this was after I retired, some agents come up to me and they were doing some consultation work out in Hollywood with some movie producers and TV producers. And they come back and Roy Hazelwood comes up to me. He says, Ken, were you ever on the Larry King show? And I said, yeah, I was. He said, what were you talking about? I said, satanic ritual abuse, as it was called. And he said, then it must be you. I said, what do you mean? He said, we were asking the guy who developed X-Files how he ever got the idea for this TV program, the X-Files. And he, and he said he was watching the Larry King show one night. There was an FBI agent on there talking about these satanic cults and satanic ritual abuse and how there was no real evidence of it. So I just began to imagine that this topic 
was so difficult, you need specialized agents to work in that area. So I developed this concept for this TV program, The X-Files, which is, you know, if you want to watch it and you find it enjoyable, that's fine. I have no problem with it. But there is no such place. And it's basically just, you know, some fantasy type thing. But in any case, so my efforts to get people to rationally analyze and process these kinds of allegations resulted in a show when people are believing in aliens from out of space and all this other stuff. And so that was kind of what I did and, and the beauty of it. And I try to explain this to people and what made me last for so long, I was there for 20 years longer than any other agent. And, and basically is because you did training, you did research and you did case consultation. And so you didn't burn out on any one of them. You had that diversity of work, made it very interesting and challenging. I worked all these major cases, but with my partner, Roy Hazelwood, when he came to me and he said, the secret of success in this unit is you have to have a specialty. And I said, well, okay, do you have any ideas? And he said, why don't you and I become specialists in what was then called sex crimes? And I said, yeah, but what will my specialty be? He said, well, how about this? I will take predominantly the adult victim cases, commonly called rape, and you take the child victim cases, commonly referred to as molestation, and that's how we'll divide it. And so that's how I did. And the only reason I tell that story and all of this story in my book is because many people come up to me and they'll say, how did you ever get involved in all of this? And sometimes as a joke, I'll just say, because I wanted to get married. So that goes back all the way to the beginning. Or in some case, I just kind of say that basically I was just looking for a specialty. It was not something that I had a calling from God and or anything like that. Or my mother was molested, my sister was molested and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Now, the only reason that's relevant is what I began to talk about in my book was my realization of what is commonly known by in the scientific community as confirmation bias. Yeah, I definitely wanted to get into that. Is some of this the repressed memories and things like that that keep popping up from time to time? Well, yeah, I dealt with all of that stuff. And see, so my work, I began, I tell the story in the book. It's a whole chapter in the book where I talk about these calls that I started to get about this phenomenon that came to be known as satanic ritual abuse. And I studied it for years and years and years. And at one time, I knew about more cases than probably anybody in the world, simply because being in the behavioral science unit, a national entity, the FBI, these cases would come to me and I became kind of an informal clearinghouse. And as I studied this phenomenon and looked at these patterns of behavior and did research into all of this, I began to understand when I went to people who I knew were very smart, in many cases, a lot smarter than I was and I asked them about this. They just told me that it was going on and I had to work harder to find the evidence and the proof because it was going on. And what eventually I came to this realization of something that I tried to form how to describe it. And I started to use this thing and had a slide and a PowerPoint made up that adult human beings tend to believe what they want or need to believe. And the greater the need, the greater the tendency. What and years were these? This was probably in 19, the mid-1980s, 83, started in 83, 84, 85, 86, and then it began to kind of burn out because at some point... Um, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Sure. During those years and the years before, weren't they paranoid about Dungeons and Dragons and that was causing possession? Yes, well, that was part of and it. And of course, heavy metal, because everyone listening to heavy metal was going to begin worshiping the devil. Yes, because what I discovered here is that the people who are alleged behind all this abuse, taking over these daycare centers and ritually abusing all these people, were all supposed to be Satanists. Now, I went to Catholic school for 16 years, and I learned about a lot about Satanism from the nuns, the priests, and the brothers, but it was all a religious perspective based on Lucifer, the angel who rebelled against God and was cast into hell by St. Michael, the archangel, and so on, and tempts people. And I realized that that religious perspective was of no value. Now, here's where being in the behavioral science unit working for the FBI was a bonanza for me. I was then given the opportunity to begin to interact with scholars and experts all over the country to go to conferences and seminars and read books. And pretty soon I began to discover, well, what exactly is Satanism? And to make a long story short, what I found out is Satanism is any religion other than yours. And so, and so basically you started, well, somebody was talking, oh, Dungeons and Dragons, that's Satanism. 
and there's some group running around there that claiming that the Dungeons and Dragons is all about Satanism. And all these different things were being labeled that if something came along and you didn't like it, you didn't agree with it, you were concerned about it, an easy way to deal with it is just label it as Satanism. And a lot of down through history that has been labeled as Satanism is actually paganism. It's not really Satanism as most people. But nobody wants to precisely define the term. But all of this, I began to realize what was going on. And a lot of these cases, I'll tell you, this is a true story. One day I was talking to a police officer in this graduate class I was teaching. And I said, if you had a subject and you were interviewing him and he told you that he heard the voice of Jesus and Jesus told him to commit this murder, would that be a Christian murder or a Jesus murder? And she said, no. And I said, okay, you're interviewing this other guy and he tells you that he, he hears the voice of Satan and Satan told him to commit this murder. Would that be a satanic murder? And she said, yes. And I said, I said, well, what's the difference? She said, what are you, stupid? The difference is Jesus wouldn't tell you to kill and Satan would. And so what you discovered here is that many... Unless you're in the Old Testament. Yeah, well, exactly right. Or unless the person you're talking to is possessed by the devil, and unless this reason or that reason. And then when you look at things like the Crusades, and then because I was a history buff, I knew all about the Crusades. We had two armies flooding across the plain with their swords in hand, both screaming, death to Satan, death to the infidel. And each believed that the other was Satan. And so that's the problem that I learned about all this. But again, my job was not to become a scholar in Satanism and the occult. I learned a lot about it. I knew where the experts were at the universities and other people that I could talk to. But now I'm looking at this from a law enforcement perspective. What role does any of this play in investigating a case and what does mind control mean as it pertains to criminal behavior and so on and discover that question yeah. about all that yeah in all these cases sure. that you studied did you ever run across any actual cult activity <laughs> yeah one of the things that i learned in my work and the reason i learned this is because once again i don't want to keep harping on it i was involved in doing three things training case consultation, and research. And particularly when you're doing training and research, you develop a real appreciation for definitions. And not only just defining terms, but consistently using those definitions. So people would come up to me for a long time and say, I know you're kind of skeptical. Have you ever found a documented case of ritual abuse or satanic ritual abuse? And I'd say, before I can answer the question, you have to tell me what is your definition of satanic ritual abuse? And most people can't even define it. Many reporters who would interview me about it didn't even know what the topic was, didn't even how you define what it is, what it isn't. So when you talk about cults, I discovered the same thing, that as I embarked on this trail, here I was the FBI's leading expert on crimes against children, sexual victimization of children. And then through this process of trying to improve my ability to assess and evaluate these cases objectively, I suddenly became the FBI's expert on Satanism, the occult, and cults, because nobody else was really doing much with that. And I just learned about all this stuff and what role it plays in a criminal investigation. And the big problem with cults, it's almost like the word Satanism. What exactly is a cult? I'll give an example. I'm not sure if this was during your time in the FBI or not, but are you familiar with Warren Jeffs? Right. Would that be fair to call that a cultish environment? And there was, of course, um, child molestation that was taking place at the time. Well, but, but yeah, but see, the key word that you use there is an important word. I don't have any problem with the word cultish, but in many of these cases, what happens here is what I discovered is that I recognize group dynamics. And I recognize that groups can sometimes do things that maybe no one individual member might do. So looking at group dynamics and how these people interact and what they share can be a useful investigative tool. But when you start to look at this and you say, well, what exactly is a cult and what does this mean from a criminal investigation? And what you discover, what I discovered is that very frequently, if you're going into the criminal justice system and you're going to start to talk about cults and mind control and brainwashing, 
it's usually the defendant who wants to talk about that because you're not now responsible. Once you've been brainwashed, this begins to absolve you of your responsibility. So they're all cult-like groups, but what I discovered is almost any religious belief system, and whether cults are limited, are they political cults, or they're only religious cults, what, what exactly is a cult? But almost anything can be practiced in a cult-like way where you have blind obedience. And I was a Roman Catholic, and still I am, for 16 years. And I saw individuals who, as Roman Catholics, would, would see a certain priest that they became in, you know, enamored with, and they would follow him and listen to him and just obey anything he said. And pretty soon they are practicing their religion in a cultish kind of way, if you want to do that. But labeling it, and I would get people would call me up and they'd say, I understand you're the FBI expert in cults. I was wondering, my son just joined the Wild Order of the Owls, and I was wondering if you could look it up on your list and see if it's a recognized cult. I said, I don't have any such list. There's nobody who decides what is or isn't a cult. As part of an investigation, you can look at the influence of cult-like activity. But so when you look at something like Waco and the Branch Davidians, one group claimed that the FBI was too much under the influence of these anti-cult groups and overreacted. Another group is claiming that the reason the FBI messed up down there is because they didn't recognize the significance of cults and they should have been consulting with the cult experts. But eventually, I came down to this. What's the difference between what some people call a new religious movement and a cult? What's the difference between a cult and a destructive cult? What's the difference between a camp and a compound? What's the difference between conversion and brainwashing? What's the difference between education and mind control? What's the difference between martyrdom and suicide? I mean, I was taught in my religion all these early martyrs who basically let themselves die rather than reject, you know, Christianity. That was a good thing. Now suddenly they say, oh, this is a cult. These people are committing suicide. They're dying. So what, what I discovered is it really depends on whether you agree or disagree with the underlying beliefs of the group. And if you don't like what they believe, you're more inclined to label them with a, with a word like cult. But the main thing I found is that from a law enforcement perspective, where it's very important that you be neutral and objective as you do the investigation. If I say to you, I want you to go out and investigate this group, maybe you'll start out more objective. If I say, I want you to go out and investigate this cult, have we already gone down the road of bias? So what you're saying, I want to make sure I frame this correctly, is that you yeah. are thinking in terms of criminality. Right. And I'm just going to go back to Warren Jeffs. Right. You're saying it doesn't matter what you call it. He committed a crime of molesting children. Yes. So of no relevance what the group believed or didn't believe. Did he commit a crime? Yes or no? Is that where you're going? Yes, that's, that's kind of, that really states it, I think, reasonably well. That the issue here is not what somebody believes. Because I once had a guy come up to me, he was a social worker, and he was talking about something that some people know about, a lot of people don't. One of these Afro-Caribbean kind of religions like Santeria and Palomayombe and these kinds of things. And he said that some of these people practice these things, and when law enforcement and social workers come into action with them, they sometimes think that this is Satanism, but it's not at Santeria. And he said, so he was developing a training program so the police and social workers would know the difference between Santeria and Satanism. And I said to him, that's very nice, but why? Well, so that he knows whether these people are practicing Santeria or they're practicing Satanism. And I said, why? Who cares? And he said, what do you mean, who cares? I said, you have a bias. Your bias is, it's a Christian bias or other religious bias, that if somebody is practicing Satanism, they must be doing bad, evil, criminal things. But that isn't true. Many people who will call themselves Satanists don't necessarily break the law. That's your bias. And it really makes no difference. What makes a difference is, is this group or the members of this group committing crimes such as abusing children? And what role does this belief system play in all of this? And religion can play a role in many forms of abuse. And you can argue what exactly constitutes abuse and so on and so forth. But I can remember when I was a kid kneeling on the hard floor saying the family rosary. My knees hurt. I was in pain. Now, was this, uh, was this some kind of child abuse? Was this some kind of cult activity? And, and so you would see of all of this kind of stuff. And, I, and basically, so much of this involved some subjective judgment. 
And, and, and one time I had a parent call me up and he said he was very concerned that his adult son was involved in a cult. And I'd say, well, what is he doing? He said, well, this cult has made him change his appearance, change his style of dress, change his name, change his sexual behavior, his acceptance of authority, his finances, what he does with his money, what classes he takes in college, who he contacts in society, whether he can be, have a relationship with his family. And that's all terrible stuff. And I want to figure out how to get my son out of it. And I said, what religion are you? And he said, well, I'm a Roman Catholic. So I said, now what if your son went off to be a Trappist monk? He would do all those things that you just described to me. And you would think it was all wonderful. Why? Because you believed in why he was doing it. So the issue is not what he's doing it for, what he's actually doing, but why he's doing it. And people then don't want to deal with this because now you're back to people believing what they want or need to believe, and they just decide that these groups are bad. And so all of this is complicated stuff. I'm not a scholar at some university teaching religious studies. I was an FBI agent trying to look at crimes and trying to figure out the best way to solve them. And I just realized that when you go down these roads and start attributing supernatural powers to these people, I had somebody tell me that when he investigated these cases, he would carry a bottle of holy water with him. I said, listen, you're entitled to believe whatever you want, but if I'm dealing with some bad, dangerous guy, I got my 357 Magnum. I'm not carrying holy water around. But, but again, it's people's religious beliefs. And what I discovered when you talked about this, I was now dealing with the double whammy of emotion. I was dealing with child sexual abuse coupled with people's religious beliefs. And when you're dealing with those two items put together, rationality and objectivity has gone out the window. You had some serious pushback, didn't you? Yes. And so, so the interesting thing about it is earlier in my career, people always thought I was you know, this wonderful guy sent by God and all this other kind of stuff. And I was the champion of abused children and so on. And then when I began to express my doubts about some of these cases, people decided I had gone over to the dark side. Some people said I was a Satanist who had infiltrated the FBI to prevent the uncovering of all this activity that was going on. A lot of people thought I was a bad guy. There was even a group of people who were pressuring senators to hold congressional hearings about me and so on. And so, but the interesting thing about it is then there were other people at the other end of the spectrum who felt that this was like satanic panic and hysteria and a witch hunt. They blamed me for causing this hysteria because I was talking about child abuse and child sex rings. They were blaming me for causing all this to happen. And then I found a quote attributed to Abraham Lincoln. I can't remember the exact words in my book that when you get attacked by both sides, that's maybe a good sign. So I felt that since the both extremes were attacking me, I was probably going down the right road in, in the middle. And so what I discovered, and this is pertinent to what's going on today, is some of the characteristics, because I dealt with people on both sides of these issues, and many of them engaged in the same common characteristics and behavior. And they're the characteristics and behavior of extremism. And it doesn't matter whether the extremism is on the left or the right, these people do it. So we have some people today who watch MSNBC and decide that that's all knowledge and Fox is evil. Other people watch Fox and decide that, oh, this is all knowledge and MSNBC is evil. And so it's so, tribal, very tribal. Yeah. So basically what they do is they believe what they want to believe and they gather information that reinforces their current beliefs. And right now we have a lot of intolerance for people who say anything different. You don't, you don't even want to hear these people. You don't even want them to let them speak who are going to challenge your views or have any discussion. They don't even want you allowed to speak about that. Yeah, that's so, actually running really rampant. I don't know if you follow many of the online culture wars, but they have what they call platforming and deplatforming. And if you have somebody on, even if you don't agree with them, the fact that you're talking to them means that you've enabled them so you have to be punished by whom you're associating back in 1986 i wrote an article and there's a an updated version of it in my book it's a chapter in my book and i call it the witch hunt the backlash and professionalism and the witch hunt and the backlash were two terms within the child sexual abuse field that implied extremism and i define what i mean by those terms and then the other thing is professionalism how do you professionally just respond but one of the, is so that the I report? The 
Well, no, <laughs> that's something else. I, I, yeah, the landing report, I, what happened with the landing report is after I dealt with these cases for a long time, I just kept studying and studying and researching and evaluating and talking to people. And finally, after about three or four years of doing that, I said, I've got to now start writing something down because I can't talk to everybody. I have to start disseminating information. So I wrote this book called Investigator's Guide to Allegations of Ritual Child Abuse. And then the FBI published it and they disseminated it for free and I was handing out copies and then somebody got it and they put it on the internet and it was all over the internet and everybody's calling me up and they're saying some satanic group has it. Why'd you let them publish your book? And I said, I didn't let them do anything. I said, this is a non-copyrightable book. I'm a government employee on government time. I can't copyright anything. I can just hope that when they disseminate it, they disseminate it in totality. But pretty soon it started to be called the landing report and people would refer to it as the landing report. It wasn't a landing report. It was a training monograph written by Ken Lanning with the approval of my superiors to help police better investigate these cases. And in the report, nowhere does it say, don't investigate these cases. It's a bunch of nonsense. Throw them in the garbage can. It tells you to investigate them, but consider alternative explanations for why what's being alleged. And earlier you mentioned this thing about repressed memories. Whether I liked it or not, pretty soon I went down that road and I learned everything I could about repressed memory and recovered repressed memories and the the controversy over it. And finally, I realized that from a law enforcement perspective, I wasn't going to get into that because you get into these discussions. What do you mean by repressed? What do you mean by memory? Is it explicit memory? Is it implicit memory? What's the difference between repressed and you forgot it and all the rest of this stuff? So I said, listen, I'm not going to get into the debate, although I know what the American Psychiatric Association had to say about it. I'm not getting into the debate. What I know is this. I'm not going to talk about the existence of recovered repressed memory. What I'm going to talk about is the accuracy of recovered repressed memory. And what I came to realize, and the American Psychiatric Association pretty much agreed, there's only one way that you can determine the accuracy of a recovered repressed memory, if there is such a thing, and that is through independent corroboration, which is what, what I did for a living. So it's like eyewitness testimony, which has been proven to be extremely unreliable. And there have been a lot of studies. I think about, like, if I saw a crime with a gun, I probably would be focused completely on the gun and not on the person's face. Right. Well, that's the whole issue of the accuracy of eyewitness testimony and so on. And then I would say to people, okay, this woman says that she had this memory and her psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor helped her recover it. What I, want, I tell the police is what you want to figure out is exactly what was the process by which she recovered this previously repressed memory. What was the, oh, she was hypnotized, she was shown these books. Now you start to have problems because, and then we can still debate whether how, you know, whether this, there was a memory, it's in there, it got buried, you can somehow now recover it some magical way. But I had psychiatrists tell me, Oh, I know it's real. How do you know it's real? Oh, my patient was curled up in a ball in the fetal position on the floor, screaming and yelling and describing it with sensory input and what it smelled like and what it sounded like and what they saw. And they're horrified on the floor. And that's how I know it happened. Well, later on, we discovered is that's not how you know it happened. That doesn't mean it happened. It's you, you can look at it. You can evaluate that. But it doesn't mean that it happened. The way you determine it happened is through independent corroboration. And that can be difficult depending on what's being alleged. But, but again, what I would say to police, the issue here is if somebody's telling you this is a recovered repressed memory, you've got a problem. And then so many of these cases went bad that very few prosecutors really wanted to go into court that was based on the recovered repressed memory of some victim. It just was not a good situation because they knew that they'd be open to attack by the defense if they had a good defense attorney. So it's a big controversial area, but I learned that some of these victims of satanic ritual abuse said that I, you know, I forgot all about it for 20, 30, 40 years, and then I was in therapy, and then I remembered it now, and then there was a trigger and all the rest of this kind of stuff. So I just dealt with, if you're going to be murdering people, you know, thousands of people and engaging in these rituals and eating flesh and drinking blood and all this horrible stuff, it's highly likely 
that there's going to be evidence. <laughs> Somebody might notice you're a little bit weird with that kind of thing. Around. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of Robert Ressler's book, and he talked about a case in like 1979 yeah. with this guy. I can't remember his name, but he was he like stank of blood and carry things around super super disorganized yes i remember i can't remember the guy's name right now because i'm getting old myself escaping but they had that guy he was in jail in california and he went out and he, he bathed in a baby's blood that he murdered and all this horrible stuff but this guy was crazy he was mentally ill he was psychotic and so on and so all of this kind of stuff you have to look at it and try to maintain your objectivity and assess it and evaluate it and look for the evidence of it and so on and so forth but Bob Ressler and John Douglas and all these people in the unit. Matter of fact, at one time when they were working on the crime classification manual, they wanted to have a category called cult murders. And they're working on the crime classification manual. And they, they brought me in. They said, Ken, you know more about cults than anybody here. Could you help us with this? And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll help you all you want as soon as you tell me precisely and exactly what a cult is. And that was the end of that chapter. <laughs> Nobody could tell me because when they started to describe it, they would talk about this charismatic leader who was blindly obeyed and everybody dressed the same in a similar style and on and on. I they think I found them. Uh, you're talking about the Lifton rules. One, a charismatic leader who increasingly becomes an object of worship as the general principles that may have originally sustained the group lose their power. Two, a process I call coercive persuasion or thought reform. Or three, Economic, sexual, or other exploitation of group members by the leader and the ruling coterie? Yeah, well, you know, those are some examples and things like that, and people had brought all that up. The only problem I would say, now just think back a few years, and let's remember the FBI on J under J. Edgar Hoover. Seems like met a lot of those categories. And it's, well, not exactly the same, but yeah, that's the way Hoover was looked at, particularly near the end as this charismatic leader. And I remember times when agents would go out to arrest and they had a duty hat. That was back when FBI agents were supposed to wear hats. And if you're going to go out on the arrest, you had to put the hat on in case the media was there to take a picture if an FBI agent was arresting somebody needed to be wearing your hat. And all these kind of blind obedience with these absurd rules and regulations. I must tell some young agent, when I came into the FBI, you were not allowed to drink coffee on duty. They say, you gotta be kidding me. What does it mean you drink coffee? Well, you're drinking coffee, you're not doing your job. And they would keep track of how much time you spent in the office because you can't solve crimes sitting in the office. You have to be out of the office. So every day you had to calculate how much time you spent in the office versus outside the office. So what, again, whether you're talking about the nuclear Navy under Rickover or you're talking about any of these people who stayed in power a long time, there's cult-like aspects of all this. Now, I don't deny all these dynamics, but the question is, what do they really mean? And what I got bothered about is that the idea seems to be suggesting if you're talking about somebody who was brainwashed. Now, a direct application to my work in Crimes Against Children was the concept of what's now called grooming or seduction. Well, the reason these kids went along with this activity and didn't tell anybody about it and kept returning to the offender is because they were groomed and they're describing it as some kind of a brainwashing process. And I said, yeah, they were groomed. And I talk about grooming all the time and what it is and what it isn't. But I don't like to refer to it as brainwashing because it seems to imply that that absolves people of responsibility for their behavior. Now, with children, we don't hold children fully accountable for their behavior, with, uh, other than a few rare exceptions. But with adults, we do hold people accountable. And pretty soon someone's claiming, well, yeah, I did those things, but I was the un under the influence of Harvey over there, and he brainwashed me and just conditioned me to do this, so somehow I'm not responsible for my behavior. The other thing I found is that very often the information that you were dealing with was just simply inaccurate. And so a lot of the information, I'd say to somebody, if you were going to join the FBI and you would say, what's the FBI like? And all you talk to disgruntled former members of the FBI who quit and so on, would you get a true picture of what the FBI was all about? I don't think so. And a lot of these cases, the police would say, oh, we have all this intelligence about the group. And they'd say, okay, where'd you get it from? Well, these five people used to be members of the group and now they've told us all. <laughs> and so when you have disgruntled former members, sometimes you have to be careful to assess 
and evaluate what they're telling you. So I just learned these principles, the basic things, and that's extraordinary, that when you're an objective fact finder, the process is to listen, not believe, listen, assess, and evaluate, and attempt to corroborate. And that's what you need to keep doing, those three things. Well, since we're poking the bear, we might as well go the rest of the way. Let's talk about nice guy molesters. Right. That's something that has been brought up. I think Jim Clemente has brought it up in the past as a possible description of what he felt or thought about Michael Jackson as an example. And you and I spoke briefly offline about this. But you know, the, inter- the, the interesting thing about Jim Clemente is, you know, in my work that I've been doing now for over 40 years doing this, when I go out now, I don't go out that much anymore. I'm getting old and I meet all these people that I trained and influenced who have read my books. One cop told me I haven't written a search warrant that doesn't have your name in it and so on and so forth. But with a guy like Jim Clemente, who's somebody that I mentored and helped to train, and he took a lot of my concept and ideas and listened to almost all my presentations, and my articles, my books. And then he goes out there and he goes out there and uses that material and develops his expertise. I take it as a compliment that you've had, your life has had some meaning. You've influenced people. But I developed all these concepts. Other people in the unit now use them. And when I left the FBI, I said, well, you were the FBI's great expert, behavioral expert on these sex crimes and so on. Who took your place? And I said, well, I have the great honor and distinction that I was replaced not by a person, but by an entire unit that Jim Clemente eventually wound up in. It was BAU-3, Crimes Against Children. Now we have nine, ten agents doing what I did by myself for almost 20 years. And so Jim was one. But what I discovered is when I analyzed this stuff, and this goes back to my job, this thing, this three-legged stool that people thought I was nuts to keep harping about. But basically when you're doing training, research, and case consultation, there's a cross benefit to all of it. So I began to recognize that there were different types of cases. All child sexual abuse was not the same. And one way you can break it down is the relationship between the offender and the victim. So for simplistic purposes, we have some cases the offender is a stranger, in other cases they're a family member, in other cases they're an acquaintance. And so usually when you start to deal with strangers, that's easy, that's stranger danger, weird guys grabbing and abducting kids and forcing them. Then you have intrafamilial cases that's hard to deal with, it's family dynamics. But the hardest one to deal with is the acquaintance because this is somebody by definition that you know and you interact, you shook his hand, you invited him to your house, you know who he is, you know his name, you told your kids to do what he says and so on. And, and most of these guys, by necessity, have to be nice. If you're an acquaintance molester, meaning the child knows your name and address and a lot of things about you, if you're not nice, you're not lasting very long. So these nice guy molesters are guys who seem to be nice. And the thing that many people don't understand is some of them are, I admit, pretending to be nice. But most of them are not pretending to be nice. They, in fact, are nice. They just have a sexual problem. They're aroused and stimulated and attracted to children of varying ages and genders. And so this nice guy molester, because the common word today in the United States to refer to these people is predator. They used to call them dirty old men in a wrinkle raincoat. Now they're sexual predators. And and I said, you know, if your definition of a sexual predator includes a man who goes to church every Sunday, brings meals to elderly shut-ins, nurses little birds that fall out of the trees back to health, if that's included in what you think of as a predator, then fine. Most of these guys are predatory, but they will not appear to be predators because if you're an acquaintance molester, there's only one effective way to access and control children, and that one way is by befriending them, grooming them, seducing them, manipulating them. And that results in you getting access to them. It decreases the likelihood that they'll report it, and it increases the likelihood that they'll keep coming back. And many people keep looking, and over the years, I've, had, I've been involved in civil cases after I retired from the FBI, and the organization say, well, an allegation was made against so-and-so, and we looked into it, but we just dismissed it, and we decided it was unfounded. And I said, okay, exactly why? Well, because he was a nice guy. 
and all the kids really liked him and everybody liked him and he just seemed like a nice guy. And so he decided he couldn't be doing this because you just have this image that if he's a predator, he's some kind of an evil monster. And then the other thing that people don't understand with these guys is very often they manipulate children. They take advantage, particularly if your definition of children includes people who, let's say, are over the age of 11 or 12. Now, what does that mean? That means that their hormones are kicking in and they have raging hormones and they have an interest in sex. And so many of these kids are not some innocent angels that some guy said, meet me in the park and I'll give you the answers to the geography homework. They met in the park because they're run away and going to have a good time someplace. So people don't understand the reality of children as human beings. They don't understand how these nice guys, and they think if the guy is nice and I invited him to my house and he helped my kid and he was kind to my kid, he can't possibly be a child molester. Now, the important thing here is there's got to be a balance between denial and paranoia. I'm not suggesting that anybody who likes to be with kids and helps kids is probably some kind of child molester. But what I'm saying is that because he's nice and helps kids and wants to be with kids, doesn't mean he's not a child molester. You have to look at the totality of events. So to wrap things up, what would be your one piece of advice that people should keep in the back of their mind and be alert about to look at where there, there could be a problem. Yes. And I think that what you have to do, you're talking about protecting, let's say, your children or your family from people who might sexually victimize them. Yeah. To is, use is to recognize, yes, simplistically, to break it down, this is, not, this is not as simple as I'm making it sound, there is a risk from danger, I mean, from strangers. So you need to talk to your kids about who they go off with and so on and so forth. Then you need to think about family members that maybe the offender is grandpa or Uncle Joe or somebody else in the family or husband. And then there's these acquaintances. So you have to consider all these possibilities. But the most important thing, in my opinion, is that you have to be involved in your child's life. And I don't know how to make this happen, but you have to love your child and they have to, you have to convince your child that you love them and you have their best interest at heart. And so you have to start when they're little, communicating with them, talking to them about these kinds of things. You can't wait till your kid is 16 and say, I want to sit down and I want to tell you about SEX and so on and so forth. You have to have open dialogue and communication with your child and so your child knows. And an interesting thing is with these nice guy offenders, it may be almost impossible to totally prevent it, to say that it will never, ever happen again. It never will happen. But maybe the best thing you can do is hope that if it does happen once or twice, your child will come to you and your child can tell you things that are embarrassing. I know, Dad, you told me not to do this, but I did it anyway. I went online and I downloaded this or whatever it is. And your child comes to me and now they're having a problem. And now you can intervene and stop it before it happens 30, 40 times, you know, before it happens repeatedly over an extended period of time and so on. And, and then you have to hope that the police who investigated understand all this as well, but they can be very difficult cases. But I, you know, I'm not against technology and software and all these kinds of programs, but the main thing is a strong relationship with your child, a bond with your child and be sincerely interested and involved in their life and start doing that and communicating that when they're very young. That makes sense. So that way they're comfortable enough that if something doesn't seem weird to them that happens during the day, they still will come to you and tell you about it. Or, or they, you know, that we, weird is a good word because depending on the age of the child, the, the other interesting thing is we say, what's a child? That's anyone under the age of 18. But that involves an awful lot of spectrum there. The, the difference between a one, a 17-year-old is more like a 27-year-old than they are like a 7-year-old. And so you have to look at the age of the child. But a lot of, for a lot of children, weird is a good word. They don't really understand what all this is it's weird and they felt this way and they kind of understand sex. They don't understand sex. They're naive and inexperienced. And that's what these offenders take advantage of. That's part of this grooming process is to gradually lower their inhibitions. And then pretty soon your child has done something that they kind of knew they shouldn't have done and they went too far. Now they're ashamed and embarrassed. And that's what the offender is counting on, that they're going to be so ashamed and embarrassed about it that they're not going to tell anybody about it. 
And so you need to have that kind of relationship that your child could come to you and say, Dad, I really screwed up. I went with this guy, and I know I shouldn't have, and I let him do this, and I know that was a dumb thing to do, but now it's going too far, and I don't know what to do. And then if you're the dad who says, you did what? And starts screaming, you're going nowhere. That makes so much sense. You've got to... You've got to talk to your child and say, okay, I know you made a mistake. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about what happened. And that's why I've written articles about what I call compliant child victims. Many people don't like this stuff. And I said, but you're not listening to my words. I didn't say compliant child, not a victim. Right. I said compliant child victim. The difference between adults and children is that with adults, consent matters. With children, consent matters doesn't matter. I don't care whether the kid said yes or no. It simply doesn't matter. There are things that children cannot consent to. Wow. That, that does make so much sense. Now the book, Love, Bombs, and Molesters, an FBI agent's journey. That's available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback, correct? Yes, a Kindle version and a printed version. I just self-published it through them just simply because my wife has some health issues and I wasn't in a position to travel around and promote the book and so on. So I was just trying to make it as simple as I could and it's there and so it's easy to order and get copies of it. You can get a Kindle version or a printed version, whatever. Now, do you have a website or anything that people can look up? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, you know, people would say to me, well, how do people get in touch with you? And I said, you know, the, from the day I re- retired in 2000, I was bombarded with work. And for the next 10 years, I had more work than I really wanted to do. And say, well, how do people find you? And I say, I don't know how they find me. They just do through word of mouth. I've never had to market myself, advertise myself people find me. But I've just gotten people say, well, what happened now? I said, well, two things. Number one, I've gotten older and you just, your body begins to wear out and I'm not really looking for work or anything like that. So I don't have a website. I've pretty much retired. I do a little consulting work, talking to people, but I'm not in a position. I've I've testified many, many times in cases. I've testified before Congress, but all of that is pretty much over in my life now. So I just do little things here and there to try to make life a little bit interesting. And and just kind of take care of my wife and my family now. Well, Ken, thank you so much for coming on. This really, really is amazing. Okay, hope with some help. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or... You can go to unstructuredpod.com, and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer-Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 